Endings are important. The conclusion of the story often bears great significance. Often a reader may lose details in the plot of the story as it develops, but a great story will wrap it all up in the end in a way that's both meaningful and memorable. In preaching, we often talk about landing the plane. In other words, how do you craft a sermon that ends in a way that leaves people refreshed and encouraged? Today, then, we want to look closely at the ending of Jesus' earthly ministry. The conclusion of his story, as told by Matthew, the tax collector turned disciple turned Jewish Christological historian. This is a famous passage, a passage that is preached often, and a passage that is often misunderstood. My aim for today is to provide clarity of understanding and conviction of action as we witness with the disciples the final command of our Lord Jesus Christ. I intend to demonstrate from the text today then that discipling and discipleship is the prevailing purpose of the church on earth. When we ask ourselves, why am I still here? And Christians often ask that, do they not? Why don't I just get beamed up right as I get saved? Why doesn't the Lord just bring me home as soon as I get saved? Jesus tells us right here, the reason that we remain on this earth, the, the reason that we are still here, still walking in this world until the Lord returns or calls us home, is so that we might be disciples and so that we might make disciples. Let's look at the text of God's Word and see how Jesus demonstrates this purpose in His final command to the disciples, the Great Commission, what I have called the Master's Mission. In order to understand what's actually happening here in Matthew chapter 28, here in verse 16, as the eleven disciples proceed to Galilee and go up to the mountain which Jesus designated, we have to zoom out really quickly and take a look at the big picture. We haven't spent the last, I mean, there's 28 chapters in Matthew, so if we had spent the last, I don't know, five years or something in the Gospel of Matthew, I wouldn't necessarily have to give you the zoom out big picture, but this is what we call a, a one-off sermon. It's a series in and of itself, and so we've got to do a little bit of research to figure out what is the significance of this statement? What is the significance of this this mountain. Why do the disciples go here with Jesus? Let's look at the big picture. Zoom way out. Matthew is one of four gospel accounts. We know that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The gospel accounts are memoirs of significant portions of Jesus' life and ministry on earth recounted from four different perspectives. It's important when you're studying the Gospels to understand that these accounts are not intended to be, one, biographical in the sense that we understand a biography, and two, exhaustive. John actually says at the end of his Gospel that if you wrote everything down that Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry, there aren't enough books in all the libraries and all the planets and all the solar systems and all the world in the universe to contain all of that information. That's incredible. What we do have is four accounts that paint for us a very specific picture. The gospel writers have an intent in writing and showing us a specific way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, a specific role, a specific characteristic, a specific attribute that he fills. 
and they include details to support that thesis. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of the Hebrew Old Testament. So when you read the book of Matthew, and I encourage you to read the book of Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament, it's very important. When you read it, keep that in mind, that Matthew is trying to prove to you that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that's the interpretive grid by which we want to look at the book of Matthew. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the guy from the Old Testament, the servant of Isaiah, the seed of Eve, the, the, the true and better prophet of Moses, all of these things. And if you're to go through the book of Matthew, it's full of rich allusions to the Old Testament in both its content and in its form. Now, there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of ways that Matthew draws on the Old Testament and on Jewish history and culture to prove his point that Jesus is the better prophet, the better priest, and the better king promised in the Old Testament. Today, we'll just examine two of those ways that connect to this geographical location. Why did Jesus call the disciples to a mountain? One, and I mean, why did he do that at all first? I mean, maybe it was a convenient location uh, geographically, but I mean, come on, who wants to go climb a mountain? You know, like, that's like, why can't we just meet at the, you know, the coffee shop or whatever, you know, for our final whatever? No, Jesus takes him up to a mountain. There's significance in the geography there, but there's also significance that Matthew includes it. Matthew is under no obligation to include this phrase here, to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. It seems like a little kind of a tertiary detail. Why is this included? Well, I believe that there are two ways in which this mountain becomes significant in the overall argument of Matthew and in, indeed, the overall argument of God's entire word. And so we want to connect this mountain to two facts, two truths, two doctrines about Jesus that Matthew proves throughout the duration of his gospel. Truth number one is this. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Matthew wants to prove that to you, and he connects us to this mountain to prove that to us, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. One, two, Jesus is the true and better prophet. You might call him the true and better Moses. That's the second truth that Matthew is trying to prove to us, both in his entire gospel and here in Matthew 28. So if we want to understand the ending, we should take a quick trip back to the beginning, remind ourselves where we came from. In the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, what do we see? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is the thesis of Matthew's gospel right there. Showing that Jesus is, one, the Messiah, there in Matthew 1.1, two, the son of David, three, the son of Abraham. All three of those things come together, and that lays the foundation for Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Two things in the genealogy. One, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. In other words, as a descendant of Abraham, Jesus is a Jew. Ethnically, he is an Israelite. He is a son of Israel, specifically a son of Judah, of the line and the tribe of Judah. That's the, the first thing. That's, that's signified by Jesus' genealogy being traced back to Abraham. His genealogy being traced back to David, son of Abraham, son of David, is that Jesus is a member specifically of the royal lineage, the royal heritage of David. Jesus is the king of, the, the, the king of, 
the tribe of Judah. He's the king that inherits the throne of his father, David. And Matthew's trying to prove that to us. And he does it just very simply by tracing the genealogy back. He says, let's go all the way back to Abraham by way of David and prove to you that Jesus is not only a, a Judahite, an heir to the throne of Judah, he's also a Jew, the descendant of Abraham. But beyond that, Matthew is linking Jesus to arguably two of the most important covenants in the entire Old Testament. Two of the most important promises given in the Old Testament were the promises given, one, to Abraham, and two, the promise given to David. Now, we don't have time to dig deep into those texts and into those promises. I just want to give you a brief overview. For Abraham, God promised that he would make Abraham's descendants into, one, a great nation, two, that he would bring them into a land of peace and rest, and three, that he would both bless them and bless the world through them. It's a promise to Abraham. You can go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and read about those promises to Abraham. Now Moses, excuse me, Moses writing about it, Moses writing about the covenant between God and Abraham is incredibly significant. There's a lot going on there. Um, And what we see then is that the covenant that God made with Abraham is is something that's repeated over and over again. Some people say it's repeated seven times. Some people interpret it as being repeated three times. And we see a sense of completion that the Abrahamic covenant is made in an absolute sense. In other words, this covenant cannot be broken, and it is this covenant to which God hearkens back to time and time again in the Old Testament when he says, I will, in the end, withhold my hand of destruction from Israel, right? As we've seen with Zach and Hosea, he will send them into exile. He will punish them severely, but in the end, God will not deny, move away from his covenant with Abraham. It is an absolute covenant. It will not fail. It will come to pass. Its certainty then is beyond absolute. But what's interesting, why this mountain is so significant for Matthew, is that the final ratification of the covenant with Moses was also made on top of a mountain. Genesis 22 records in many ways the climax of the book of Genesis and the climax of both Abraham and Isaac's lives where Isaac is maybe an inch away from being sacrificed by his own father. We know the story. This is a highly important event in Genesis and indeed in the larger scope of all of redemptive history. It's depth and breadth are beyond the scope of our study today, but there are two facts that I want to just point out really quickly about this event. Genesis 22 is the seventh time that God tells Abraham that he will make a covenant with him. We all know that in biblical literature, typically the number seven represents completeness, fullness, How many days did it take God to create the earth? Did he create everything? Six days, and on the seventh, because everything was completed, he rested. 
And we are called to reflect that in our own celebration of the Sabbath even today. Seven marks completion. But this is also, chapter 22, with the sacrifice of the ram, the third time that we see a ritual sacrifice ratifying the covenant. So you have a seven, the seventh repetition, and you have the third repetition. And three, as we know, often in biblical literature, represents perfection. And we talk about the Trinity being represented in perfection. And we talk about even the, the repetition of the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And this covenant takes place on top of a mountain. Mount Moriah. This covenant looked forward then to its final fulfillment in Christ as the Messiah of the Jews. He is the one who came forth from Abraham. So we've seen the the trace back to Abraham and the importance of that covenant. But we also have a covenant that was made with David in 2 Samuel 7. That covenant stipulates that God would make David a great name, that he would appoint a place for Israel, that he would bring peace and rest for Israel, that he would raise up a descendant who would build a house for him, and that descendant would rule over Israel forever. To simplify all of this down, God promised David that from his line would come a king who would rule over all kings. He would be the greatest king in the line of Judah, and he would indeed be the greatest king in all of human history. Now before we move on, we need to take a look at a minor detail that has major significance for Matthew 28. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, and that's where we start the covenant. The covenant comes from the mouth of the prophet Nathan to the ear of King David, promising David that this king would come from his line. And you might go, what's the significance? What's the point? The episode between Nathan and David, David going, wow, I live in a great house, a house built with cedar wood, and it's a very nice and fine palace. Meanwhile, the Lord is dwelling in a tabernacle made of goat skin, and it's kind of a tent, and at this point, it's maybe a little bit run down and a little bit shoddy, and so David says, this is not right. We need to build a house. We need to build a temple, and we know what happened. That was taken away from David because of his sin, um, and it was given to his son Solomon, who built the temple, and it was kind of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you go, okay, well, that's fine and dandy. What's the big deal about this promise, where this promise is being given to David, we know that it's at his house. It it happens at night. Where else would David be at night when he's had rest from all his enemies? He's not camping out with the armies. He's been given rest from his enemies. It's a time of peace. Where do you, when when things are peaceful for you in your own life and it's nighttime, 
where do you go? You go to your house. At least that's, I mean, that's what I do. I like being at my house. I just like sitting there. I'm kind of a homebody like that. People go, hey, Daniel, a homebody? I'm just kidding. The location is significant. Just a few chapters earlier, we saw David ascend to the throne of Israel, chapter 5. In chapter, in, in verses 6 through 10, we see David overtake the city of Jerusalem to establish the city as the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And what does David do when he takes Jerusalem? He gets Hiram of Tyre to send him a bunch of wood, build himself a house. He has his house there in the capital city. Makes sense. You're the king. House is in the capital city. The White House of Israel, as it were. So David has his house in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem famously is situated where? On top of a mountain. So when God gives Abraham the covenant in chapter 22, they are on top of Mount Moriah. When God gives David the covenant, he does it while David is in his house, which is on top of a mountain. Interesting. So, when Matthew opens his gospel by telling us that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, he's telling us three things. One, he is telling us that Jesus is not just a son, but is in fact the son. Why is that significant? By using the definite rather than the indefinite article, the the rather than the a, he's declaring that Jesus is the one who fulfills the covenants that were given to these two men. Both of them were promised sons. He is the one who will possess the gate of his enemies. He is the one who will bless the nations of the entire earth. He is the one who will build a house for the Lord. He is the one whose throne will be established forever. He is the one who is the son of God. So he's the Messiah, he's the true son of God. Two, he's truly a Jew because he's the son of Abraham. And three, he's truly a king because he is the son of David. One verse, Matthew 1, 1. Matthew sets the stage for the rest of his gospel. He establishes Jesus as king of the Jews. And if you understand the implications of the covenant with David, he is king of the entire earth. And now we find the connection to the Great Commission. Jesus as the, not a, the promised king of the Jews gives him authority. Authority to speak like no other prophet, no other king, and no other priest spoke in the history of the nation of Israel. And that's just the first aspect of Matthew's presentation of Jesus. We want to look also briefly at Jesus as the true and better Moses or the true and better prophet. And this is, this was unplanned. And let me just give you a little bit of insight here. I was scheduled to preach right now, this Sunday, like two months ago. I was scheduled to preach Isaiah 24 in our series with the book of Isaiah, the gospel of Isaiah. What a great study that's been. Then, eight days ago, I get a text from Pastor Scott. I'm sick. I can't preach tomorrow. Can you preach? And I said, yeah, sure thing. And I was like, I, I got to re-preach something. So last week we looked at John 15 from a sermon that I originally preached at an earlier, earlier time at one of my previous churches. And then I thought, and then I texted Pastor Scott and I said, what do you want me to do next week? I was scheduled for Isaiah 24. And he goes, just do another one-off. It's fine. I'll pick up Isaiah 23 the following week. And I said, great, that's easy. Let's talk about the Great Commission. And so I had had a bunch of notes on the Great Commission, and I was like, let's formulate this up into something that makes sense. And after all of that was done, I thought I should check out 
whatever I'm doing on Thursday night to close it out this coming Thursday, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And my jaw dropped. The parallels between Deuteronomy 34 and Matthew 28 are unbelievable, which means you have to be with us on Thursday night <laughs> to hear all the backstory of this. I'm only going to give you a few. I'm going to give you the trailer version. If you want the full movie, you've got to come on Thursday. Matthew, over the course of his entire gospel, is trying to, is trying to portray Christ, and he, not, he's not trying, he does, he accomplishes it. He portrays Christ as the true and better Moses. He does this explicitly and by way of analogy. The explicit way that Matthew paints Jesus as the true and better Moses is in that famous, magnanimous, glorious scene on, again, a mountain, where Jesus says, hey, inner circle guys, Peter, James, and John, come with me. And they go up on top of a mountain. This is in Matthew 17. And they go up there, right? And so it's like, okay, what's going to happen? Well, let's set the backstory. Be reminded, as the disciples are going up to this mountain, the entire Old Testament, everything that happened pre-Christ could be summed up in two little phrases. The law and the prophets. Right, and we know that, right? That's throughout Jesus' ministry. Well, what about the law and the prophets? I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? So if you're reading this then as a Jewish person, as an Israelite in Jesus' time, you hear Moses and Elijah, and you go, oh, Moses is the first Moses is the giver of the law. Moses represents the law. Elijah is the first prophet and kind of represents all the prophets. So really, it, really, if you understand everything correctly, really Moses was the first prophet. But Elijah was kind of like the first one where it's like this guy's called a prophet. And so when you hear this story, you're familiar with it. We don't have time to read the whole thing. When you read this story of the disciples, they go up on the mountain and they're kind of there with Jesus and then it's like, and all of a sudden you're like, I mean, they fall on their face, right? They're, they're laying there prostrate on the ground. They're going, Moses and Elijah, these are the two most important figures in our entire religion. Everything that we do comes from one of these two guys. And they, and they often sit there and talk about it, right? That, oh, who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the new Elijah. They look at Elijah like he's this guy that's going to come back or someone like him is going to come back and, and say that. And Jesus says, that's me. And he tells them over and over and over again, right? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5. The Pharisees are always throwing the law at him. And he's like, you guys don't understand the law. I am the law. You guys don't understand the prophets. I am the true and better prophet. And these guys don't get it. These inner circle guys. Peter, James, and John. Oh, I don't fully understand. I don't get it. So Jesus is like, all right, let me paint the picture real clear for you. He goes up on the mountain. Here come Elijah and Moses. They come down. They're all on the mountain. And the three guys are like, Peter, classic Peter. This dude's always like, he's like gung-ho, man. We got to go do this thing, you know, until the rubber really hit the road. And then he was like, oh, I don't know him. You guys know the story. Anyway, let's build this guy. Let's build these guys tents. These are the most important guys in our history. They've come back. We've got to make sure that they stay here. Let's build them a house so that they can live in it. And then, they, and then it's like this massive flash of glory. They're like, oh, no, and they fall on the ground. Oh, no, and they wake up. And who's still there? Not Moses, not Elijah, Christ. 
And then for the second time in Jesus' ministry, a voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who is a Jew supposed to listen to? Moses, Elijah. Now, who do they listen to? In these latter days, God has spoken to us through his son, Hebrews 1, 2. So this is explicit, right? Jesus comes down, they're all there, Moses is gone, Jesus remains, Christ is the true and better Moses. They see it with their eyes. It's as easy as that. And that whole experience impacted Peter significantly, as you'll see, Zach forgot. We're going through 1 Peter on Thursday nights, so after Deuteronomy. So come and hear how the transfiguration impacted Peter's ministry. In any case... This transfiguration occurs as a memorable and distinct visual explanation of this truth. A tassel, if you will. Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. He is the true and better Moses. And it takes place on a mountain. Of course it does. Where else would it take place? But there's also some typological analogies in the book of Matthew. In other words, Matthew's trying to show real parallels between Moses and Christ. Listen to this. Moses, born in the midst of a mass infanticide perpetrated by a paranoid king. Jesus' birth prompts mass infanticide perpetrated by a paranoid king. Moses flees from Egypt and returns to lead his people out of bondage. Jesus fled to Egypt as a child and returns to lead his people out of bondage. Moses goes up on a mountain at the beginning of his ministry, receives the law from its author. Matthew 5.1, Jesus goes up on a mountain at the beginning of his ministry and delivers the law as its author. And then at the end of his time on earth, Moses went up on a mountain again, this time to commission one man, Joshua, to lead the people of God into the promised land. At the, time, at the end of Jesus' time on earth, he went up on a mountain and commissioned 12 men to lead the people of God into their promised rest. That's all I'm going to say about Moses and Christ. You have to come on Thursday night to hear the full version. After all of this, having spent 28 chapters with Matthew showing us that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, that he is the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures, it should come as no surprise that we find Jesus on a mountain. The most important topographical and typological location in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, knows this. He knows the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament. The poetic irony then is intentional on Jesus' part in two ways. First, by going up to the mountain, he's linking himself to these episodes, all of these things that have happened both in his life and in the life of the nation of Israel. Secondly, he wants to bring his disciples back to where it all started in Matthew 5.1, which says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus is bookending his ministry. Starts on a mountain, ends on a mountain. By bringing them back to where it all began, Jesus is telling the disciples, I have accomplished what I intended to accomplish during my time on earth. I am going to the Father. 
It is your turn now. Everything that Matthew has been trying to show us for the last 28 chapters comes to its climax here in verse 16 with Jesus and the disciples on a mountain in Galilee. Which then leads us to our second point of our outline, the master. We see Jesus demonstrating himself to have utmost authority. What does the text say? A couple of observations to make. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. They worship him. He has been given authority. The two primary observations we want to make from 17 and 18. After all we've seen leading up to this point, and all the disciples have seen leading up to this point, their response shouldn't surprise us in both ways, right? Most of them worshipped, some of them doubted. Some will say that the most that, that, that they worshipped, those were the inner circle guys, the, at this point, 11 uh, disciples. Those are the ones that worshipped, but there were other disciples there, as there were in Matthew 5, 1, when the crowds were there te- that he was teaching, and those were the ones that, were, that, that doubted. Others would say, some worshipped, some doubted. There's an argument to be made, primarily by my father, that the that the only two disciples were actually saved at this point, actually really regenerate. Um, And that would be John and Peter who believed in the record of John when they saw the empty tomb. They saw it, they looked, and they believed. That's Peter and John. We know that Thomas doubted, and probably just a few days before this, doubted, then saw the hands, the feet, the side, bowed before the risen Christ and said, my Lord and my God. So you have three that we know for sure. The others, maybe, maybe not. And there's a whole other theological argument to be made. Were they not saved until Pentecost when the Spirit came down upon them? That's a conversation for a different time. Some worshipped, some doubted. Let's say most worshipped, and some doubted. They bow before him. Why? Because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Those first words out of Jesus' mouth shouldn't surprise us at all. We've just seen it. He is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. He's the true and better Elijah. These are all figures of immense authority in Jewish culture. And Jesus says, I'm greater than them. He demonstrates, I'm greater than them. How many times does he say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's the son of Abraham, son of David, true and better Moses, and those are probably the three most important figures in all of Jewish culture. With the echoes of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 ringing in the ears of the disciples, Jesus utters this massive statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He declares himself to be greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He declares himself to be God, very God. This has massive implications then for our understanding of who Christ is. He leaves no room for debate about the true nature of his identity. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a wise man. He is not just a picture of personal sacrifice for a cause that you believe in. He is the Lord of creation and in the same breath also its Savior. Just as Jesus had power to command wind and wave, power to create galaxies and atoms, so also he has the power to forgive sin and the power to impart new life. His authority transcends time and space, matter and mind. We ought to pause then for a moment and consider the implications of this statement 
First, for the way that we think, and second, for the way that we live. We have to ask ourselves, when the disciples saw the risen Christ here, as he declares, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, they responded in worship. They understood. They confessed Jesus for who he really was. Who do we confess Christ as today? Is he just a nice guy? A good voice to consider in the conversation when you're trying to figure out how to live your best life now. Man, Gandhi had some great things to say. Confucius had some great things to say. Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, these guys understood life. And Jesus, he was a good guy too. No, Jesus leaves no room for that. No room for a confession of Jesus merely as a voice in the conversation. He's the one who created all of the other voices in that conversation. Is Jesus just a good teacher who gave us some good moral instruction? There are guys in our nation's history like Thomas Jefferson who loved the teachings of Jesus from a moral perspective. Thomas Jefferson was obsessed with the Sermon on the Mount. He hated Matthew 17. Every Bible that Thomas Jefferson ever got his hands on, according to legend, he cut Matthew 17 and Matthew 28 out of because he couldn't stand the idea that Jesus is anything more than just a good moral teacher. Couldn't stand it. Is Jesus just the key to a purpose-driven life? If you believe any of these things about Jesus here today with, with all gentleness and teaching, allow me to just say that I think your view of Christ has fallen short of the definition of Christ as put forward in the Scriptures and by Jesus Himself. The Apostle Paul is clear, you must confess Jesus Christ as Lord what must we believe? What must we confess about Jesus Christ? Listen to these words. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin." being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, without confusion. This person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. We have to understand Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just the key to the purpose-driven life. He is God, very God. The one, the only mediator between God and between men. You either believe that or you don't. Jesus leaves no middle ground. And let me be clear with you this morning. Your life depends upon whether or not you believe these things. If this is then true about Jesus, how do we live? Do we obey? 
Do we follow? Do we seek the fame of his name, the glory of his gospel above our own comforts, our own wants, our own needs? Do we seek to love Christ's church more than we love ourselves? Do we serve Christ? Do we serve his church with abandon? Just as this statement by Christ allows for no middle ground on what you believe about Christ, it does not allow for any middle ground on how you must live if you actually believe it. If you believe that he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, you will do what he says. You can't do anything else. His glory as the God-man, his glory as the risen Christ compels you to fall prostrate before him. And as you lie there, his grace as the mediator lifts you up to walk in newness of life. So Jesus has thoroughly established his authority, his foundation upon which he can make this statement in verses 19 and 20. This is the burning core of our passage today. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In just a verse and a half, Jesus makes one of the most dense and most pressing commands of his entire ministry. There is a reason that he saved this command for last. Why? Because this is how the legacy of the gospel is carried on beyond Jesus' time on earth. This is the passing of the baton. As Moses passed it to Joshua, so Jesus passes it to the disciples who become apostles. And these apostles pass that baton on to faithful Christians who pass it on to other faithful Christians. Add a few thousand years, and it has been passed on to you. Jesus then here is kick-starting the disciple cycle. Commissioning disciples to make disciples. Unfortunately, this is where a lot of pastors and teachers and preachers and scholars and blah, 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 all the rest get this wrong. The English translation kind of muddies the waters here. In English, you look at this and you go, uh, 19, verse 19, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. And so you hear that and you go, okay, well, the word go comes first. So that must be the most important. And so people have often taken this and said, well, this is a manifesto for world missions. You have to raise support. You have to go get a seminary degree. You have to learn 18 foreign languages and you have to go to some unreached people group in the heart of Africa to preach the gospel. And that's who this is for. So if I'm not a missionary, scamp. Let's get to Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No! The Greek in which this was written has a different way of emphasizing the grammar. Go is actually a supporting phrase. The primary phrase is make disciples. Make disciples. So grammatically then, the main idea isn't go, though it comes first. In the Greek, the main idea is make disciples. And really the way that we should understand it is as you are going, make disciples. It's almost like you're, you're already going. You're going somewhere. Everybody's going somewhere. Everybody lives life. Everybody has a place that they live, a place that they work, a place that they hang out. You're already going somewhere where there's somebody that's unsaved, especially in Los Angeles. There's 10 million people here. 
And by the looks of it, most of them don't know Christ as their Savior and don't know Christ as their Lord. You don't have to, if you want to reach unsaved people, you don't have to walk more than about 20 feet. That's the idea. As you are going, make disciples. So that's the main idea. Make disciples. How do you do it? Three, a three-part system for disciple making. Step one, you go. Step two, you baptize. And step three, you teach. Let's look at this main overall command, make disciples. The word make is supplied in the English. It's not there in the Greek. It, it, it literally just says, go and disciple all nations. So the word disciple then can be both a noun and a verb. In the noun form, a disciple is just a follower of Christ. If you follow Christ today, you're a disciple, plain and simple. That's, it's, it's as simple as that. First used in the New Testament to refer to the 12 disciples, but it is also used 25 times in the book of Acts to refer to just believers. And in Acts 11, Luke tells us that the followers of Christ, the disciples, were first called Christians. Little Christ. A disciple, the noun, is a follower of Christ. To disciple, the verb, is to follow Christ. Christ. You're a follower who follows. You're a disciple who disciples. But there are two layers to the verb meaning in Greek. One is personal, one is relational. First, you have what, what I would call discipleship. Okay, Discipleship is your own personal following of Christ. When you, let's put it this way, invest in your own discipleship, you invest in your own walk with Christ. And we talk about growing in our walk with Christ. We mean discipleship. But there's a relational aspect to it too. We might call that discipling. Discipleship is about me. Discipling is about others. What do we mean by that? Discipleship is following Christ personally in our own lives. Discipling is helping someone else become a better follower of Christ or maybe become a follower of Christ for the very first time. Discipleship then is being a disciple. Discipling is making disciples. It's both a personal command and a relational command. So here in Jesus' command then, the noun form and the the noun form and the personal verb form are already implied by use of the word disciple back in verse 16. They are disciples. They are already following Christ. And they are discipling by following Christ personally as the, they physically follow Jesus to the mountain. So really it's that third form, the relational part, which is why that word make is supplied. Go therefore and make disciples. In other words, go and start discipling others. Go and start helping others follow Christ either for the first time or help them become better followers of Christ. That's the, the concept of discipling here. What is Jesus saying here then in effect? He's, he's saying, we acknowledge that you're already a follower of me, right? All these guys, maybe 11 and maybe a handful of others that are there, that, but that core 11 really is who's in view here. You already are following me. You already are engaged in personal discipleship. You're already committed to my teachings. You've already, maybe at this point, you would think, it's not ever recorded, which is kind of interesting, the, the, the disciples being baptized. 
But the implication is that they've been baptized. They're already walking as disciples. What do they do now? They take that discipleship that they're walking in and they pass it on to others. What do they do? Let's put it in the simplest possible terms. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and disciple. Go and duplicate yourself. As you follow me, so help others follow me in the same way. But Jesus has some specific instructions. How are you to help others follow him? Three steps. Step one, go, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is not the main point, like we said. It's the idea of as you go, right? It's just your daily life. As you live your life, make disciples. As you go from point A to point B, like today, make disciples. Jesus assumes that we're already going somewhere. We're already doing something. We already have a life that we're living. And this blows up, as I said, the notion that the Great Commission is a manifesto for overseas missions. That's putting a big old limit on the Great Commission. There's so much more to the Great Commission than just going to the Congo and preaching the gospel to indigenous peoples. That is certainly important. Certainly important. But no less important is us going to our backyard and doing the same. This makes the Great Commission harder and easier at the same time. It's easier because you don't have to raise support or get a seminary degree to fulfill the Great Commission. You can do it right now. You can do it this afternoon. All of you in the room can do it this afternoon. But it's harder because you can't get away with excuses anymore. You can't say the Great Commission isn't for me because I'm not called to full-time ministry. I'm not, I've not been given the gift of preaching, so therefore the Great Commission is not for me. I'm not an apostle, so the Great Commission is not for me. The Great Commission is for anyone who is a Christian, anyone who is a disciple, anyone who is a follower of Christ. And your mission field is wherever you go in whatever you do. Step two, baptizing. We all know, if you were with us last week, what, ba- what happens in baptism? What does baptism look like? It's immersion in water. Theologically, baptism is defined as an external physical ceremony that reflects an internal spiritual reality. It's important to note that this is, only, this is one of only four times in the New Testament where baptism is expressly commanded. Go and baptize. Here, twice in the book of Acts by Peter, once in the book of Acts by Paul. And the act symbolizes at least three things. From Ezekiel 33, it symbolizes the cleansing of our iniquities by God the Father. From Romans 6 that Zach read last week during our baptism ceremony, it represents union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Number three, it represents the pouring out of the Holy Spirit resulting in regeneration. That's from Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. Two observations to make about those statements. Each deals with an aspect of our new lives as Christians. We've been cleansed. We've been brought into union with Christ. We've been regenerated by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's what happens when you get saved. When you get born again, that's what happens. So it's about being a new, baptism is about representing what it means to be a new baby Christian, one, but two, it also represents the work of the Trinity in your salvation. 
God does something in your salvation. Christ, the Son, God the Father does something in your salvation. Christ the Son does something in your salvation. The Holy Spirit does something in your salvation. Baptism isn't just something that we do willy-nilly then with no real purpose or intention behind it. We baptize for two reasons. First, because Christ commands it. And secondly, because it paints a captivating picture of the new life we have in the Trinity. Why is this part of Jesus' program for disciple-making? He wants to make sure that we are centered on what makes disciples truly disciples. That They actually have new life in Him. I see so many churches that just want to baptize people willy-nilly and get their baptism numbers up so that they can put some big number on the screen that says, we baptized 200 people last week. And then you jump right in to teaching, right? Our third step without that new life actually being present in that believer. And that's a tough place to be as a church and a tough place to be as a Christian. Doing and learning and teaching even all the right things without the life of the Spirit and the life of the Son and the life of the Father in you. You can't miss this baptism step. This step of baptism represents the work of God in the gospel. In other words, you must receive the grace of Christ as Savior before you can ever walk in the grace of Christ as Lord. Don't miss the baptism step. Don't miss the significance of the baptism step. It is the gospel step. Start with the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in baptism. And that will prove to be the difference between producing hypocritical disciples who do the right things and say the right things, but do them and say them for all the wrong reasons, and producing genuine disciples who follow Christ out of a sincere love for Him that comes from a heart that has been cleansed and regenerated. Step three, teach. All Teach them to observe all that I have commanded, all that I have commanded. Two senses here. One, teach them what Jesus taught while he was on earth. That's the simple reading. The second reading is to teach them the full content of the word of God, because this is just the written word. Christ is the living word. All the words that are contained in this book are indeed the words and the teachings of of Christ to teach all that I commanded then is to teach them this. If that doesn't explain why this book is so central in everything that we do here at this church, you haven't been paying attention. Our call is to teach, to equip, to proclaim the word of God for the edification and the encouragement of God's people. So you go, and really as you go, right? You baptize, and then you teach. Now, let me be clear here. Teaching isn't just standing up front and giving a lecture or a sermon. You can teach anywhere you go. Anytime you have a one-on-one or a group conversation and you, the, the, the things of the Lord come up in the conversation, you have an opportunity to speak truth into the lives of the people who are around you. Anyone can teach. 
Paul talks about two types of teaching in his ministry, public teaching, which would be preaching, or, or sort of the teaching that as we would sort of conceive of it in, a, in terms of a lecture or something like that. But he talks far more frequently about private teaching or house-to-house teaching. It's the idea of small groups or one-on-one meetings with the purpose and the intent of helping someone to follow Christ better, to discuss the things of the Lord, to discuss spiritual growth in our walk with Him. Many of you may never ascend to the pulpit or to the lectern, but we all certainly have ample opportunity to open the Word of God and discuss and teach its truth to those who are around us, whether that's here at church, work, at home with our family, wherever we find ourselves. Jesus has called us to make disciples and he's given us a three-step road map for how to do it in going wherever it is we go, baptizing, teaching, and then duplicating yourself, teaching them to the point where they can then go and make disciples of their own. That means we've got work to do. That's why we are here on this earth. That's why we don't just get beamed up as soon as we get saved. We have an opportunity to go, to baptize, to teach. And that's why we've been left here. So you've got to ask yourself a couple of questions this morning. Am I a disciple? Am I walking, abiding, as we saw last week, with Christ? Am I walking with Him as a follower of Him, as a disciple of Him? Am I learning from Him? Am I learning from His Word every day? Am I abiding with Him in prayer and with communion? Second question is, who am I raising up? Who am I discipling? Who am I investing in? Who am I imparting the truth of God's Word to on a daily basis? We've all got somebody. Every Paul has a Timothy. We have a responsibility then to proclaim the saving gospel and then to proclaim the truth by which we are to live. And this starts with us here in our church, moves out to our community, to our world. We've got to ask ourselves, are we discipling each other? Are we helping each other every day follow Christ better? Are we helping our families follow Christ better? Are we helping our co-workers follow Christ better? Are we helping our community follow Christ better? The commitment to discipleship time and time again proves to be the means by which God brings revival to his church. Revival doesn't start in the pulpit. Revival starts in the pews. Growth doesn't start in the pulpit. Growth starts in the pews. And if we as a church commit ourselves to this commission, there is no doubt that Christ will use each of us in this room today to fulfill his promise to build his church in such a way that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Great Commission is a high and serious calling. 
I know I often feel overwhelmed by the call to, as I go, make disciples by teaching and by baptizing. So we want to close by just a brief word on the means of accomplishing this commission. It's daunting. It's overwhelming. How can we do it? Jesus tells us, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a great comfort that by His Spirit, Christ dwells in us. He is with us, providing us with daily grace to fulfill this commission. We can take heart then. We know that as we go, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, the power and the presence of Christ guards us and guides us as Christ works in our work to make the gospel seed effectual, to draw his sheep to himself and to bring them home from grace to glory. Friends, Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. Gracious Christ, we come to you this morning as the disciples came to you on the mountain in worship. We acknowledge